Thank you for your applause. Uh, <laughs> I know Patty didn't know this, but I'm preaching from the same text she just read from, being the well-oiled machine we are. So let me read it one more time. I'm preaching from John 14, 1 through 11. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, that, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. In today's text, Jesus starts talking about cosmic truths, truths that are way over the head of the disciples. He tells his disciples that death is coming, his death. But even when he is gone, Jesus says, trust in God and trust in me. Because, Jesus indicates, death does not have the final word. Jesus, when he is physically gone, he said he is going to, to go and make dwelling places in heaven for the disciples and everyone that follows and those dwelling places will give us access to Jesus and the Father forever. And Thomas, always honest, honest yet pessimistic Thomas, replies, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? We're clueless. To which Jesus responds in a way that, despite all Jesus had taught before, must have shocked his hearers. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, not through religion, not through ceremonies and sacrifices. I am the way. Notice that Jesus did not say, I know the way. I'm teaching you truth that will get you to heaven. I, I, I will lead you to a better lifestyle. He is not enlightening his followers with precepts and ideas about how to get to heaven. He is saying, I am the way. I am the embodiment of truth. I am the funnel of eternal life. Buddha called himself a guide to the way, but he said, in no way, trust in me. Muhammad called himself a prophet, but no religious or spiritual leader in history ever said what Jesus said that day. Jesus does not just teach salvation. He says, I am your salvation. I am the face of God the Father in this world. Ray Stedman said that uh, he was teaching a Bible study and he read this passage of scripture and a woman objected. She said, that is so narrow-minded. Yes, it is, said Stedman said at once. The truth is often very narrow-minded. 
If you want to reach someone by telephone, you have to dial the right numbers. Almost isn't close enough. If the number you dial is off by just one digit, you'll reach the wrong number. Does that mean the phone company is narrow-minded? Does that mean your math teacher in school was narrow-minded? Okay, somebody said yes. <laughs> well, she said, avoiding the point I was making, I still think you should interpret that verse in a way that is less narrow-minded. Oh, Stedman said, well, let's see. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How would you interpret those words in a way that is less narrow-minded? She stood speechless. And then Stedman, and then she said, well, I never claimed to be a theologian. Stedman said, Jesus wasn't talking to a bunch of theologians when he said these words. He was talking to ordinary people, and he was speaking very plainly. He said he himself was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to God the Father by any other means than himself. He underscored it and emphasized it. There's no way he could have made his point any plainer, is there? The woman was never able to refute his conclusion, but neither did she accept it. Her arguments ended in a shrug. This statement of Jesus is one, Stedman says, which I believe must, we must be narrow-minded about. To be broad-minded where crucial spiritual truth is concerned, especially when the words of Jesus are so clear, is very dangerous indeed. The truth matters. It's not a question of what Jesus said and, 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 and what he said, does it make us feel good or seem narrow-minded or it doesn't fit our definition of fair? The only question about truth is, is it true? As Christians, are we not supposed to believe the words of Jesus? If Jesus said it, is that not case closed? It should be. If Jesus is not our authority, then who in the world or out of this world is? Aren't we Christians supposed to be Christ followers? As never before, the words of Christ, the, the scriptures which bear witness to the life and teaching of Christ, are under attack. A group of scholars met to determine the authenticity of Christ's gospel statements at one meeting. These were top-notch liberal scholars. They distributed among themselves colored slips of paper. A red slip meant that that the particular statement under consideration was authentic. A pink slip meant it was probably authentic. A gray one meant probably not authentic, and a black one meant not authentic at all. One by one, Jesus' statements in the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew and Luke were evaluated and took a beating in the polls. Blessed are the peacemakers was totally voted down immediately. Jesus couldn't have said that. Blessed are the meek, that went down in ashes too. In the final count, only three of 12 assorted blessings and woes from Matthew and Luke were deemed authentic. Three out of 12. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated event. This goes on quite a bit. And it's taken its toll. Never have more people had as little respect for the Bible as they do now. In non-Christian populations among younger generations, the latest polls say 50% think the Bible is just a story that was made up. 38% say it is mythology. And 30% say it is a fairy tale, according to the latest Barna research. Others discount Scripture because they say Scripture supported and supports the oppression of women 
or advocated and was used to defend slavery and is unscientific. I hope you don't mind this morning if I take a swing at some of these things. The teachings and example of Christ, along with the teachings and example of Paul, have done more to liberate women than any two individuals in history. Jesus treated and considered women his friends as well as his disciples, which was unheard of in that day. The Jewish population was scandalized because of the way Jesus treated women and elevated them. Paul endorsed women leaders such as Phoebe, a deacon, and Priscilla, a pastor, and Junia, an apostle, and said you must give them special honor as leaders in the church. The New Testament stunned the world 2,000 years ago by stating that in Christ there is neither male nor female, which again was written by Paul, that woman oppressor, and endorsed women's giftings. The reason Paul gets a bad rap on this is because of a shallow and superficial interpretation of Scripture. When it comes to slavery, Paul also set in motion principles that undermine the institution of slavery. He told slaves and slave masters who worshipped side by side that they were to treat each other as brothers and sisters and to esteem each other as Christ did and does. These principles that Paul set out undermined the worldview was that, that slaves were non-human property, that, that one person was valuable and the other wasn't. What Paul did is he took out the philosophical legs of slavery. And it's true that Paul's teachings were used to endorse slavery throughout history. But it is also true that Paul set in motion ideas that created the abolitionist movement and mo motivated Wilberforce and others, other movements that, which took down state-sponsored slavery. If it were not for Christians, slavery would have lasted a whole, whole, whole lot longer. It still might be going on today. The problem is not the Bible. It's the horrible ways we have used and twisted the Bible. The Bible is revolutionary. It is radical. It, and if we follow it, it will take us to whole, play, whole new places. Oh, and the charge that the scriptures are fairy tale or myths. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were the greatest myth makers in the last century, maybe forever. Both were committed Christians and in part because these modern myth-makers saw that the Bible was not a concoction of myths. They were experts on myths. They knew a good myth when they read one, and they said the Bible is not that. Where it was meant to be history, it was history, and I could go on. The Bible has gotten a bad rap. And excuse me if I take up for it this morning. But what I want you to know is this, as David Kinneman from the Barna Research Center stated, he said, when the Bible goes, so goes our faith. Because reduced trust in the Bible has the same impact as removing the foundation from under a building. Everything starts to crumble. And have you noticed? It has. And the result is moral and spiritual chaos we have all around us. Now we have essentially do-it-yourself religion or spirituality by the millions out there. We are now invoking the right to have our own private religion, no matter how ridiculous it is. And we demand it be respected in this age of tolerance. If I worship a frog, it is intolerant of you if you do not endorse that with enthusiasm. If I lick frogs to get high, and by the way, there are frogs in the world where you can get high off of them and people that lick them just for free. Anyway, if I lick frogs to get high for worship, 
you're supposed to be happy for me or else you are a narrow-minded, mean-spirited person. What we require of belief these days is not that it makes any kind of sense, but that it is simply sincere. If you sincerely believe in frog worship, who am I to question it? What we feel inside trumps everything, including logic, science, scripture, or 2,000 years of agreed-upon truth. Spirituality is perceived as a matter between just me and God, and the Bible and the church needs to mind their own business. That is what is out there. So we patch together a little scripture, a little Buddhism, a little self-help, a little positive thinking, maybe a few new age ideas about our divinity, and away we go. The question of whether it's true or not is irrelevant. The question is, does it work for me and make me feel good? If it does, that's all that really matters. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. America is, by the way, is not against spirituality. America is gaga. Western Europe is gaga for spirituality. Spirituality is considered a good thing. What they're against is that is any spirituality that claims there is such thing is such a thing as truth. When you say there's truth, intellectual elites rise up and tell us we have crossed the line. All truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. And guess what happens with this do-it-yourself religion? God ends up looking just like us. He or she thinks like us, values what we value, wants what we want, and wants to give us what we want. We might as well be looking in a mirror and singing praises to what we see in that mirror. I am worthy, I am worthy, I am worthy, O oh me, to receive honor, honor and power, honor and glory and power. In some ways, this is more dangerous than atheism or agnosticism. The result is, is that millions think they are encountering the true and living God, but in reality are worshiping their own self-image in the name of God. We never get to the real God whose life and truth and agenda are so much bigger than our own and our own comfort and our own personal happiness. And of course, there are the macro heresies too. Liberal theologians worship their intellects instead of the real God. At the heart of liberal theology is an anti-supernatural bias. If it doesn't fit their scientific model, it didn't happen. Even if scripture says miracles happened. Jesus was a great moral teacher, but that, that miracle stuff, forget it. Liberal the theologians have gutted the gospel, and then they wonder why millions of people have left their churches. It's because everything about Jesus' life was supernatural. That's what he said in today's text. He said, I don't talk unless the Father tells me what to say. I don't preach unless the Father tells me to preach. And the miracles come from the Father. I and the Father are one. Everything about Jesus' life was supernatural. And if you got that, there's nothing left. And then there's conservative heresies. These heresies don't gut the Bible. They just tend to add stuff to Christ's truth that isn't Christ's truth. These heresies blend the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America. They are not the same. 
The kingdom of God started 2,000 years ago. The kingdom of America came 1,600 years later. The kingdom of God is run by Jesus. The kingdom of America is run by politics. The kingdom of God operates by the power of God. The kingdom of America operates by an entirely different power. And some even have Jesus blessing our greed and materialism in the name it and claim it mode. Some tell us we have some sort of special relationship with God because we're um, in America. Only one nation state has ever had a special relationship with God, and that was Israel. And now the people of God are not called the first Israel. They are called the second Israel. It is called the church, the new Israel. And we are all over the globe. God loves Christians equally and fully no matter where they are from. We don't get first in line to heaven because we're American. Wow, you know, we've, we've heard the kids singing. Let me, let me sing one for you. Ready? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of America, of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. He also loves teenagers, adults, and geezers like myself. I've said it many times. I will say it one more time. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not an American. We have to be careful here. The Bible cuts across every philosophy, every political movement, every nationalism. The kingdom of God belongs to no one group or nation. When Christians get in bed with politics, and by getting in bed with politics, I mean you drink the Kool-Aid and you go, my party is God's party. I don't see how anybody could be a Christian and belong to that other party. When you drink the Kool-Aid, we are in trouble. Someone I wish I could remember who it was, but somebody came to me a couple of weeks ago and they said, do you know what you get when you thoroughly mix religion and politics? I said, no, I don't know what you get. He said, just politics. History has proven it over and over. When church and state become one, it's not the church that converts the state, it's the state that converts the church. It does not work. There must always be a distance in politics between the church because we belong to another kingdom with other values. And there has to be some distance from any political party in order to speak truth to power, in order to be prophetic, in order to do our best. If we end up saying God's a Republican or a Democrat, it's us who's going down. God will just be used to rubber stamp every political agenda. And God's standards end up being watered down. Jesus will not be domesticated by anyone. He will not be used as a means to an end to our personal, or, uh, our personal well-being or our political well-being or our national well-being. Or let me put it this way. All I'm arguing for this morning is that Christians need to quit letting the world tell us what is right and what is wrong, what is real and what is myth, what is truth and what isn't. And by the way, according to the intellectual elite, there is no such thing as truth, so it's all kind of true. Spiritual renewal starts by Christians 
reclaiming scripture. The three avenues of truth for Christians are God's word, his spirit, and his body. If we lose any of these three things, bad things happen, and bad things are happening. And I need to add one more thing. It doesn't matter if we believe in the Bible, but it just sits on the coffee table. It doesn't help a lick if we don't read it and open ourselves to its truth. Scripture is one of the ways the Spirit forms us into the image of Christ. I have never known anybody leading a life of spiritual death, depth who has not been deeply affected by Scripture. You simply cannot fumble around in the dark. You need a guide. The Bible is a faithful guide. We must expose ourselves to God from time to time with a Bible in our hands. One way is simple. It's as simple as I know, and I invite you to do it. Ask God to meet uh, with you in Scripture. Read and pray simultaneously and slowly. Again, one writer put it, put it this way. They said, God still meets people through the Bible. One writer said that a friend of our family named Eileen was upset when her daughter told her that someone had been talking to her about God. Oh, my goodness. And although she was disappointed with her life, trapped in her own suburban island, Eileen wanted nothing to do with God. That night, Eileen couldn't sleep. At midnight, she went downstairs and picked up a Bible. It was amazing she even had one. She couldn't remember the last time she'd been to church, nor had she ever opened a Bible on her own. When she opened it now, she noticed it was divided into an old part and a new part. She didn't know what that meant, so she decided she'd start with the new part, figuring the new part may have been revised and updated. So in the still of the night, she sat on her living room floor and began to read the Gospel of Matthew. By 3 a.m., she was in the middle of John's gospel and found, as she puts it, that she had fallen in love with Jesus. Something burned inside of her. And she prayed this spontaneous prayer. She didn't even know she was praying. She just said, she said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know you are what I want. And Jesus showed up. Hallelujah. It is uniquely in the Bible that we encounter Jesus. The message of the Bible is not just that help is coming. The message of the Bible is that help has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. So before you read, acknowledge that Jesus is present with you. And as you read, certain ideas may strike you. You may be moved into reading about God's love or feel convicted about some sin or be prompted to take some course of action. Be open to the possibility that God is really there, really speaking to you through his word. Just sit down with a Bible and open your soul open to God and read slowly and see what happens. You just may get the surprise of your life. You may just discover you love Jesus too. Be open to the Spirit because the Spirit inspired the Scriptures and the Spirit still speaks through them. Be ready to receive. A second experiment I invite you to is to read Scripture and take a portion of Scripture with you through the day. John Ortberg, my favorite writer, said, why don't you try this? To begin, choose a single piece of Scripture, one thought of God's, that will live with you for one day. 
Select this verse or phrase before you go to sleep at night or as soon as you wake up in the morning. Take, for example, this thought from Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. For one day, live with these words. Let your mind continually return to them in secret. Today, as best I can, I'm going to be still. I'm not going to chatter thoughtlessly. I will remember that I do not have to defend myself or make sure people think of me the way I want them to. Today, I don't have to get my way. Today, before I make decisions, I will try to listen to God's voice. Today, I'm not going to be tossed around by anxiety and anger. I will take those feelings as prompts from the Spirit to listen. In each of these situations, I will ask God, how would you like me to respond? I will live in stillness. Do you know what it is like to be still? Do you know how others in your life might love it if you were still just for a day and quit ran, running your yap? As you do this, a wonderful thing will happen. You will discover that you really do want to be still. You will really want to know he is God as he reveals himself to you. Spiritual renewal comes when we face the truth, not warp it into our own image. We must return to the scriptures. We must return to the word of Jesus. Chuck Colson wrote so many years ago, the gospel is good news. But Jesus never said it was easy news. The central truth about the cross is death before life, repentance before renewal. Before the gospel can be good news of redemption, it must be the bad news of the correction of sin. Jesus called people to go beyond themselves to become by his truth and his power a different kind of human being. The spirit is quenched when the truth is abandoned. The spirit takes the word and reveals truth to us. He uses the truth to transform us. And when the truth gets watered down, the spirit gets grieved or quenched. Christianity is sweeping like a wildfire across the global south, below the equator. South America, Central America, East Africa, China, India. And it is no coincidence that these people groups value Scripture in a way that is being lost to us. Christianity withers when we start telling Jesus how he needs to be, which truth pleases us and which truth doesn't please us. We can't work with Jesus to save the world by giving up the content of our faith. Because God, I want you to hear this, God wants to bless us, but he cannot bless our heresies. He cannot bless our heresies. He cannot bless the warping of truth. Where Christianity is flourishing, Scripture is believed on Scripture's terms. And where it is not, where scripture is considered myths that need to be demythologized, the church is dying. Look at Europe. They led the way in proclaiming how the Bible was nothing but myths. Look at what's happened to the church in Europe. Look at the millions who have left the mainline churches. I used to be one of them. When Jesus said, I am the, let me give you a little litmus test here today. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 
and that no one comes to the Father by me, what is your immediate reaction? Does it mean you feel a call to pray with more fervency for your family and neighbors who are not Christians? To pray more for the missionaries out there trying to, to bring the gospel to new frontiers? Does it challenge you to give more to the cause of Christ and take our personal witness more seriously? Or does it mean we consider Jesus narrow-minded and mean? Who do you believe more, Jesus or a fallen culture that tells us Jesus isn't tolerant enough? Can you get over that? The Savior of the world isn't tolerant enough. Today we're going to partake of communion. Jesus died so that we could be here today. Jesus died to bring the kingdom of God. Jesus died to set us free. If we believe him, it will change us. If we don't, we have nothing to offer the world. We just don't. We're going to take, partake of communion in the seats today. And so we want you to stay.